This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth today, and it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Definitely top five, maybe number one, right up there with John's gospel. Um, so you can open in your Bibles to Ruth. It comes right after. Um, it goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, which is an old Lyle Lovett album. But um, uh, Ruth is, we're going to give some context, and it's in this time of uh, the Judges. And we look at this story, this little book of Ruth, and as we do so this morning, I want us to remember that the Old Testament always gives us context for the new, setting the table for God's redemptive story that plays out throughout all of Scripture. Ultimately, um, that's accomplished by Jesus. And as we look at the Old Testament to make sense of the new, we're introduced to a people um, and a plan of redemption and then lots and lots of failure. We're introduced to great characters. There's Abraham and Moses, Esther, Deborah, Jeremiah. And much of the Old Testament is comprised of these stories of kings and queens and prophets and very important people in the story of God's mission on earth to restore his creation. But sandwiched in between these groups of royalties and prophets and patriarchs is one little book that seems out of place, and that's this book of Ruth. It's short, and it, it contains these obscure characters who seem terribly ordinary. What in the world is this story about a couple of widows and a farmer doing amidst all of these famous stories and great people? How could this story be about God's mission to restore creation and save a people for himself, for his glory? Now, this book of Ruth has been called by the, the German poet Johann von Goethe as the most beautiful short story in the world. And I tend to agree. It's short, just four quick chapters, and it's devastatingly beautiful. And if you have any appreciation for literature, if you read, and I do, I encourage you to read this over the, today or this week. Read the whole, the whole book. It's short. It won't take you very long. But, but it's beautiful. And there's times when, when I read it, even now, having gone through it so many times, that I still, I, I weep because of its, its beauty. But I think the question that we can sometimes ask is, why are we reading this 3,000-year-old story as we approach Easter in another 30-some-odd days? And how are we to read it? Those are a couple of the questions I want us to address this morning. But um, let's pray together as we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we... Um, desire to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lord. We, we desire, Lord God, to know you more and the work that you've accomplished through Jesus for us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray now, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and um, that, Lord, we would leave this place with a deeper faith than when we arrived. Pray that for myself and for all of us. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so how are we to read this story? How are we to understand the story of Ruth, a Moabite widow, and her journey to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law? Well, I, I want us right out of the gate to see this is one little part of God's story and his commitment to come to this world that he made, that we have broken in our rebellion, and, and to which he has committed himself in his grace and mercy to redeem. Ultimately, through Jesus, these Old Testament stories always point forward to Jesus. The story is about the mission of God to save people, to restore what Francis Schaeffer calls glorious ruins, which is me and you and every person who's ever lived, made in the image of God, but who has been marred by sin. And, and as we think about, well, this is the gospel, this is good news here in Ruth, and we think about, well, yeah, as, as a Christian, one of my jobs and my privileges is to share this good news, to witness to the good news of what God has done. And so we think about joining God's mission and sharing our faith and, and having a burden for the lost. But as we do that, we always have to remember salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. He's the one who saves. His is the burden for the world and his mission is to come and to save and so the mission of god is the background for this story of ruth and gives us our theological setting it's one little little sliver in this whole part of god's redemptive plan and purposes and maybe we can see this most explicitly in ruth chapter 1 verse 6 god visited his people now i want to read uh just a portion here, Ruth chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 6, and we're going to provide some historical context. Then she, this is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me. For your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's get some historical setting. This is an historical book. It comes after, in canonical sequence, the book of the Judges, the era in which this story is set. And in the time of the Judges, as you've been hearing the last number of weeks and will continue, it's after the people have arise, arrived in the promised land and have settled there, yet it's before the time of the kings. David has not yet been anointed by Samuel. Saul hasn't come onto the scene. It was a time of constant rebellion against God. 
And the last uh, verse of the book of Judges gives us the historical context. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he or she saw was fit. Or another translation, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you've paid attention as you, you go through this book, if you've read it before, you'll find it, it's horrifying. It's, it's a scary movie contained within the Bible. It's been described by one erudite evangelical scholar as Israel being flushed down the toilet again and again. The creator, if you've ever seen the movie or uh, the television program Breaking Bad, the creator of that TV show said he was just riffing on the book of Judges. Yeah, it's bad, and it gets much, much worse. It keeps spiraling downward for the people of Israel. The Israelites rebelled against God by serving the gods of the nations around them. They ignored God's law. There was gross rebellion and idolatry. And God judges them again and again. And then we see that the Israelites, they cry out to God. And then he delivers them, rescues them again and again. That's the landscape behind this story of Ruth. And so maybe we could think of it this way. Like a painting. If you've ever been in one of the great museums of the world... You, you can sometimes see a, a, a painting, a landscape that, that's just so massive. Uh, the one that I think of is in the Louvre, uh, the coronation of Napoleon by um, Jean-Jacques David, I think was the guy who painted it. And it's, it's like the, the size of this whole tapestry right here. And you walk into the room and it's, it's, it's breathtaking. But then you see, even as the focus is on Napoleon's coronation, you see these little miniatures in the foreground, in the background. And if you go a little closer to home, you don't have time to go to Paris, you go to the, the Philadelphia Art Museum. We have a picture of my daughter, Kiana, when she was like eight years old. She's standing next to a Thomas Aikens uh, picture. Um, I think it's called Between Rounds. It's a boxer um, from uh, early 19th century. And Kiana's kind of fitting in to the foreground of this picture because it's, it's huge. It's a big picture. Focus is on the boxer, but then there's all these stories of what's going on around it. And that's what Ruth is. She presents a miniature. A miniature with other big, great, grand, huge, massive things going on. She's one small portrait of God's faithfulness against such a background, a backdrop of wickedness. An ordinary story amidst the great things of the age. Now, Again, why, why are we talking about this story? Well, we should always be talking about the Old Testament, but what does this have to do with us today? Right? We're, we're living in Philadelphia. We're in America. It's, it's the 21st century, and this was 3,000 years ago across the ocean. Well, it's interesting that we do actually live in a similar time. We can see the existential background of this story that applies to us today. If you ever hear somebody say, um, these are the worst of times, man. It's, it's never been this bad. This is the worst it's ever been. I think we can push back against that. And we can say, well, first of all, there's nothing new under the sun. And secondly, um, moralistic relativism, personal autonomy, they have a deep and tragic history. Just as in the, day of the days of the judges when everyone did as they saw fit, we live in a day where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Individually, we're atomized. We serve the idol of self. Self-worship, personal autonomy. And we, we create new gods. We don't necessarily worship Molech or Chemosh, but we worship oftentimes an idealized version of ourselves. That's the God who tells me what to do. Me. 
And it's a sin I think all of us are drawn to. I'm drawn to that, pleasing myself, doing what I want to do. There was this um, 20th century writer, James Weldon Johnson. He wrote a fictional anthology, and one of the most memorable lines I can remember in one of his stories was an argument between two people, and one of the characters says, you may convince me you're right, but you'll never convince me that I'm wrong. That's social media in a nutshell right there. That's the existential background, both in Ruth's day and in our own. And as we go through Ruth, I want us to ask ourselves some questions. We're, we're, we're kind of flying through this story. What portrait will God paint of his faithfulness in this landscape of wickedness? So what portrait is God painting in the story of Ruth? And furthermore, what portrait, what miniature of faithfulness is God painting today in our own lives? Here and now against the background of war and pestilence, sin, degradation, and atomization. And I hope we start to ask those questions about what God, what God, what are you doing in, in, in my life, in my family's life? Because in God's mission, we do have a part to play. A calling to serve him, to glorify him. It's the same calling of Abraham and of Ruth and of Israel and all others who believe today to be a fragrance of life, to be a blessing, and declare the good news of God's grace, ultimately in Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's get into the story. Um, and again, we're kind of flying through this. So once upon a time, there was a man named Elimelech. And names are going to mean a lot in this story. And, and Elimelech's name means God is king. And he and his wife, Naomi, her name means pleasant, have two sons, Malon and Kilian. And they live in Judah, but they leave Judah in Bethlehem because of famine in the land. And here's a first instance of irony in this wonderful literature. It's true story, true truth, but it's also wonderful literature. Bethlehem means land of bread. And so right away we're like, okay, so they leave the land of bread because there's no bread in the land of bread. And they go to the other side of the Dead Sea to try to find a better life there, to Moab. And now there's famine in the land um, in Bethlehem. And we, like, we don't really have a reason as to why that is. It could be drought. It could be because of war. And that's what I think it is. Because it's at this time, in the time of the judges, that Israel is constantly being attacked and, and occupied by Moab or the Midianites. And the Midianites in particular, they would use this war of attrition. They would just destroy the crops. We'll starve you out. And Elimelech has this happen to his family. And his name would imply, well, God is king. I'm going to cry out to God and ask him for deliverance to provide. But he doesn't do that, even though as a faithful Jew, he should have stayed in Israel and cried out for mercy. Instead, he flees. And so right out of the gate, we don't have a very good picture of this Elimelech. And, and here's why this is such a big deal. Only in Israel, throughout the Old Testament, only in Israel, the promised land, is there salvation. Salvation is found nowhere else. It's tied to a people and a place. So to leave Israel is to leave salvation. It's contrary to the mission of God. And nowadays we think of mission as we go to the nations. And the Old Testament is, no, you draw. Israel is called to draw people to themselves. Why do you worship this God? Why do you have these weird rituals? Why do you live in the way that you do? It was the idea that people would be drawn to God, to be a blessing to the nations around them. But Elimelech proves to be faithless by departing the land of salvation. And, and furthermore, it appears that he's given his sons Moabite names. 
Why would Elimelech flee to Moab? Particularly when Moab is not the promised land of God's presence and grace, but is instead a pagan land where this god, small g god, Chemosh, is worshipped. Now, the god Chemosh was a fertility god to whom children were sacrificed. We read in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and, and where ritual prostitution was practiced. And again, uh, let's just pause. We're, we're talking about a, a book from a long time ago, a culture from a long time ago in a land far, far away. What does that, this have to do with us? Does this happen in our day? Well, I think, again, the existential context is similar for us. We have this lack of restraint on sexual liberty that's pervasive. Sexual immorality is the liturgy of our self-worship. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to get mine. Period. What about the sacrificing of children? We don't do that today. Well, in the United States, in the last five years, there's been about one and a quarter million abortions a year. That's our landscape. Back to Ruth. It gets worse for the family as they're in Moab trying to make a living. While they're in Moab, the men die. Now, this was essentially a death sentence for the women, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. In ancient culture, women owned nothing or little and had no protection under the law, which is why God says throughout Scripture that he is a defender of widows and orphans. And we say, well, yeah, this was true many hundreds of years ago, but many parts of the world, this is true today as well. In any case, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, they're in trouble. So Naomi makes a decision to return home in verse 6, chapter 1. And we get from this decision that Naomi is a believer. She's a follower of God. She puts her hope in him that in Israel, there's going to be somebody who obeys God's commands to care for people, to care for the sojourner, the foreigner, the poor. God is her only hope. And it's from God's people that she seeks mercy. But we notice in verses 13 and 20 that Naomi, again, whose name means pleasant, says she's got a new name. Her name is Mara. Which means bitter. And like so many of us, like, like me, when things go badly, I have a tendency to become embittered towards God. God, why did you do why did you bring me here? Why did why is this happening to me? Why would you do this to me? Yet God is so merciful, and He puts up with these complaints. And it's interesting, we're even in some ways called to do this, to complain to God. Um, seems like that's what the Psalms oftentimes are all about. David did it, like David, like Naomi, we cry out to God, God, what's going on? I don't understand what's happening. Where are you, God? Why have you hidden your face from me? And God doesn't rebuke. Now, God calls us to cry out to him, but with hope. That's maybe the distinction. It's a slight nuance. That can even be like, oh, some bitterness and hurt and angst, but not without hope, not in despair. And God consoles. He provides. Naomi, yeah, she's bitter. And if that's all she is, God will judge. But she has hope. God's mercy towards her, towards us, is greater than our bitterness 
deserves. And so Naomi and the women, they set out in verse 7 to return to Bethlehem. But along the way, Naomi tells them to go back in verse 8. Go back. Maybe, just maybe, your mother's household will take you in. Now this is incredibly odd for Naomi to do. She's going back to hope, right? She has a belief, God, you're going to provide. The people of God are going to provide. And now she's telling her daughters-in-law, yo, yo, go back to Moab. And it's essentially the anti-gospel. Remember, it's, it's tied. Salvation is tied to a, a people and a place. This is the anti-gospel. Don't come to salvation, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi doesn't seem like much of a, a missionary. Now, I, I don't say this to bust the chops of Naomi. I, I say this, I hope this gives us hope. I hope this gives us hope. If Naomi can be used by God to bring a person to salvation through even the anti-gospel, then maybe he can use me too. Even if in sharing my faith, I screw up the words which I've done so many times, or I fail to say anything even though I feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and I keep my mouth shut, or if I detract or malign the gospel in some way, God still saves. It's God's mission. He's the one who saves. What does Naomi do positively? Well, in verses 8 and 9, she does what I think so many of us, the only thing I can do is pray. She prays for God's blessing over her daughters-in-law. She prays for them. A friend of mine, um, he called me, this is, this is a couple years ago. He was relatively new, had been working for a tech company, the world's largest tech company in New York, and had been there for about a year. And he had make it, made friends with some of the people that he was working with. He was starting to um, develop relationships with them. But he called and he asked, how do I share the gospel with, with these people that I work with? This company is big on, on maybe DEI, but not so big on Christianity. I'm a little nervous about opening my mouth. What are people going to say? Are they just going to think I'm a weirdo? How do I do this? And, and so we just started to go through, you know, just do good work. You know, do your job well. That's glorifying to God. Um, he's like, yeah, I think I do that. I said, treat, treat the people that you work with with kindness, um, compassion. He's like, yeah, I think I do that. I, you know, I'm becoming a good friend to them. But how do I turn the corner? And, and I have these opportunities, and, and then I don't say anything, or I, I just walk away, and I feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit, but I, I don't. What, what can I do? And, and so I just said, well, maybe, maybe just pray. Maybe just pray that God would bring people into your life, and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, in that moment, you would have words to say. And he was like, all right. He wasn't super excited about that advice, but he's, all right, I'll, I'll do that. I'll pray. He called me then a few days later. He said, Tucker, you won't believe it. I prayed that God would bring people to me and that I would have an opportunity to share with them the good news. And the next day that I, after I prayed that, um, I come I'm in the office, and a guy in my department, he asks, um, why, do I, why do you show up so early at the office? And my friend says, well, I just want to get some work done, you know, before it gets crazy. I want to have some quiet time just to, to think. And um, the, his coworker says, well, I, I always see you reading something when I come in. What are you reading? My friend was a little bit nervous. It's like, um, yeah, just, you know, reading some books, and, and I'm, I'm reading the, the Bible. I'm reading the Bible. 
and he was worried, what's going to come out of this coworker's mouth after he says this? Is he going to be like, well, you can't be doing that here. That's inappropriate. Instead, his coworker said, you know, I grew up, remember going to church, but I've lost touch. Could I go with you sometime? And, and my friend, and this friend is, by the way, what you called evangelistic, like low-hanging fruit. So, like, you pick that fruit. And my friend said, of course, yeah, of course, come. So that next Sunday, this coworker shows up with another coworker who has no exposure to the gospel whatsoever. No, no familiarity with Christianity. They show up to church with my friend. And then they start going to Bible study, life group with my friend. And, and my point is... My friend prayed. Naomi, in this episode, she prays. And yet, Orpah goes back home, but Ruth doesn't. And we get some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture in verse 16. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. It's a solemn oath and vow on pain of death. It's Ruth casting her lot with the God of Israel. Even while Naomi has given the anti-gospel, go back Turn back, Ruth becomes a follower of God. And, and so Ruth is in Bethlehem, and, and she's an immigrant, and the people are amazed that she came with Naomi. She's a foreigner, now a part of the people of God. It's against this backdrop, against this landscape of idolatry and wickedness, that the mission of God is fulfilled of his word going out to the nations to draw people in through the unlikely wanderings of a couple of Israelites, Naomi. And Elimelech. In God's gospel, the good news of what God is doing reaches this unlikely Moabitess. She becomes a child of God through faith. From death in Moab to life in Israel, there's a new beginning for Ruth. And whenever God redeems a person, there's a new beginning. That's true then. It's definitely true now. God's intention is that there's a new beginning. Each person he redeems is now a part of God's story. Ruth has a magnificent part in God's story. In chapter 2, she meets a farmer who cares for her and Naomi. It was this one that's, yeah, I'm going to follow the dictates of God, the laws of God, the commands of God to take care of the sojourner, the widower, and I'm going to provide for for her. In chapter 3, Ruth is married to this ordinary farmer, and then Ruth bears a son, And in Ruth 4, we get a genealogy. Ruth's great-grandson will be King David. Her later progeny will be the true king, Jesus. Ruth is even included in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew genealogy. That's Ruth's story, a new beginning. New beginnings are what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are all about. I don't care where you come from, what you've done. The promise of the gospel is this, that you can come to God and be received as a son, as a daughter, on this side of the cross through faith in Jesus Christ, who loves you and gave himself for you. So that you say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's our identity 
as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of God, children dearly beloved, with a new identity, a new beginning. So the question for us today is this, where is God using me, where is God using you as a part of his story in his redemptive work in the world? Just like Ruth, you've forsaken the idols of the day and chosen by God's grace to serve the Lord, to walk in his ways. You have been born again according to God's plan. And just like Ruth, you've become a part of his mission to the world. What's God doing in you and through you? What miniature of God's grace is true in your life? What portrait is God painting? John Calvin wrote that the world is the theater of God's glory. And if God is directing this story, it will end in beauty. In spite of the decay, it feels like all around us. All right, that's a fly through the book of Ruth. What's the application? Well, pray today. Pray, God, would you bring people into my life, maybe just one person that I can love well, that I can maybe even turn that corner if I do know them and I haven't shared the gospel with them, that I could share the good news of Jesus Christ. I could share about his life, his perfect life. And, and one of the prayers this morning that we had, he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve. And he rose from the dead that we too would have new life in him. Union with Christ, indissolubly connected to Jesus eternally. I want to share that with somebody so that they have hope that no matter what's going on in the world around us, the violence, decay, the degradation, that there's hope. There's hope. And in this world, there's so much despair. We desperately need hope. So pray. This book is about God's mission and God's calling unlikely people to be caught up in that mission. He called Abraham and Sarah. He called Israel. He called Naomi and Ruth. He called David. He calls you. And you might say, well, listen, you know, my faith is, I'm, I'm hanging on by a thread here, man. Um, and, you know, I'm not much of a, an evangelist. I'm not much of a Bible scholar. What good can I do? Well, I think this is where we say, well, will your ordinary story be the miniature where God will advance his kingdom? Will God paint this little miniature in your life? Yeah, it's ordinary. You're not famous. You're not getting book deals. You're, uh, nobody really wants to, to, to listen to you opine about stuff, but God will use you. You never know what God will do with an ordinary life. Now, this is the last thing. How did God visit his people here in the time of the judges, in the story of Ruth? Well, we saw in verse 6, he brought... Food to Israel, to be sure. But he was even present with bitter Naomi, Mara, in the midst of her pain. How was he present with Naomi in the midst of her pain? Well, through Ruth. In verse 21, Naomi tells the people of Bethlehem when they've returned, I've come back empty. 
I've come back home to Bethlehem after this sojourn in Moab. I've come back empty. That's why I'm bitter. I've experienced the death of my husband, my two children. Here's another instance of irony in the literature. Who's standing right next to her when she says this? Ruth. Too ordinary to see, but Ruth, standing right next to her, provides food, companionship, family. And Naomi realized it when Ruth and Boaz's child was sitting in her lap in chapter 4. Ruth. God visited Naomi through Ruth. Ordinary love. We can talk about sharing the gospel with people, which we're called to do. But friends, sometimes it looks a little bit different, maybe a little more ordinary than that. When you tuck your kids in bed at night and you pray with them. When you listen to the pain and hurt of a friend. When you call your mom and dad just to ask how they're doing. God is visiting them through you. Like Ruth showing Naomi covenantal, faithful love. So you do to the people around you. Coming close to them like Ruth to Naomi. You're wrapping your arms around them, saying, I care. I love you. I care about you. And you do that sometimes without recognition, sometimes without thanks. Even forgotten about. Like Ruth was forgotten by Naomi. But it points to God's extraordinary love coming close to us in Jesus. Let me pray for us.